Hello, I'm Joanne Diaz. And I'm Abram Benning. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. Today, we are very excited to have not one, but two guests with us to discuss John Keats' wonderful poem, To Autumn. Michael Tooney is the Robert Harrington Professor and Chair of the English Department at Illinois Wesleyan University, and Brian Rejack is Associate Professor and Associate Chair of English at Illinois State University. Together, they are the co-editors of a volume titled Keats's Negative Capability, New Origins and Afterlives, published by Oxford University Press, and they are also the curators of the Keats Letters Project, which you can find at keatslettersproject.com. Brian and Michael, welcome. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So, as Joanne mentioned, we're going to be looking at John Keats' To Autumn, and before we begin our discussion, would you be willing to read that poem for us, Mike? Sure, I'd be happy to. To Autumn. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run, to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core, to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel, to set budding more and still more later flowers for the bees until they think warm days will never cease, for summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells. Who hath not seen thee oft amid thy store? Sometimes whoever seeks abroad may find thee sitting careless on a granary floor, thy hair soft lifted by the winnowing wind, or on a half-reaped furrow, sound asleep, drowsed with the fume of poppies, while thy hook spares the next swath and all its twined flowers. And sometimes like a gleaner thou dost keep steady thy laden head across a brook, or by a cider press with patient look thou watchest the last oozings hours by hours. Where are the songs of spring? I, where are they? Think not of them. Thou hast thy music too. While barred clouds bloom the soft dying day and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue, then in a wailful choir the small gnats mourn among the river sallows, borne aloft or sinking as the light wind lives or dies. And full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly born, hedge crickets sing, and now with treble soft the red breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. Wow, that was so great. <laughs> All right, so here's my question for you. As someone who does not regularly read uh, the Romanticists, and who is not perhaps immediately taken by this poem, <laughs> but who understands, <laughs> who understands that Keats is great and very influential. Talk to me. Why is this a great poem? What should we be noticing in this poem? Or what's the context of this poem? Or what's this poem doing that changes poetry that we should understand? How about we just kind of start with some immediate context? We actually know about when Keats wrote this poem. He has a letter to his good friend Reynolds 
written on the 21st of September, 1819. Um, and Keats is talking about the fact that two days earlier on Sunday, so on September 19th, 1819, he was out for a walk. And this is what Keats writes to Reynolds. He says, how beautiful the season is now, how fine the air, a temperate sharpness about it. Really, without joking, chaste weather, Diane skies. I never liked stubble fields so much as now. I, better than the chilly green of the spring, somehow a stubble plain looks warm in the same way that some pictures look warm. This struck me so much in my Sunday's walk that I composed upon it. Huh. Wow. Yeah, so we, you know, it's one of those poems. It's like, okay, we know exactly when, <laughs> when yeah, was, was making this, this poem and kind of what inspired it. And for Keats, it's a poem that's kind of coming late in his life. So Keats died very young. He suffered his family disease, tuberculosis, which was called at the time consumption. Earlier that spring, Keats actually has a, a coughing fit. Um, he coughs into his pillow. He sees that there's blood. And Keats, who had studied as a physician, looks at that blood and he says, that is arterial blood. It is my death warrant. I must die. Wow. Right? So Keats is aware of, is highly aware of his own mortality and even a sense that it's, that it's much more imminent. To Autumn is often read in terms of its high seriousness and the, the sort of quiet tragedy of its musings on mortality, especially the, the end of the poem. This gets at a, an issue with this poem that Mike and I talk about a lot with respect to Keats, the, the temptation to always associate everything with death and mortality because we know the conclusion of mm-hmm. Keats's life story, right? I mean, he, he dies in February 1821. So it is true that a year and a half after writing to Autumn, mm-hmm. Keats is no more. But Mike and I always try and push back against that narrative a little bit because there's so much vitality and playfulness and wit and just, yeah, life in in Keats's writing and in this poem, too. There are all these images of the, the profusion of, of life and fruitfulness and ripeness, the apple trees whose branches are bent with these, these apples, the fruit filled with ripeness to the core. You've got a a gourd that's swelling, hazel shells that are plumped with a sweet kernel. Then that that final image of the bees with the the budding more and still more later flowers for the bees. And then, right, they've got their orbrimmed clammy cells. In terms of the the images and the the form right from the, the start in that first stanza, it's all about the the fullness of life and everything that the season of autumn brings. Could you say a bit about his closeness to nature and how he works on it and how it works on him? Yeah, he's he has that snail horn perception of beauty. That's the uh, the hallmark of Keats's poetry in a lot of ways. Is this this really fine grained attunement to the natural world. But actually, you know, he, Keats grows up the, the son of a stable worker in London. He is an urban poet. 
Um, and so his writing about these natural scenes is very much learned. And what many of his critics during his lifetime made fun of him for is essentially he's a suburban poet. His his nature is not the the sublime of you know the Lake District where Wordsworth is. It, it's the the nice little foxgloves on Hampstead Heath. So to us, right, it it reads I think in a, a slightly different way than it it did to his contemporary critics. I want to take a moment and suggest that this is Keats's most negatively capable poem. In December of 1817, Keats writes a letter to his brothers George and Tom, and Keats talks about how he has this kind of insight into the nature of literary genius. And he says, at once it struck me what quality it went to form of man of achievement, especially in literature, and which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean negative capability. That is when man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. One of the things that's happening in this poem is what's not happening in this poem. So one of the things that's pretty amazing about To Autumn is that it's one of those poems that actually isn't going to make a palpable design. So it's not saying here's Autumn and now here's its clear meaning for you. Part of the value of this poem is being able to hear its kind of quietness and its reticence and to to understand that over and against kind of the noise and the bombast of other kinds of poetry. You know, when I was reading this poem, I, I kept waiting for the, um, I don't know, the insight. And this poem just sort of sticks with sight. <laughs> it never sort of brings itself around to a sort of central insight or a central takeaway or something like that. Instead, it's just sort of like, here's autumn as it gathers all the fruits and things together. Then as it makes the, as it presses all the fruits and, and oozes them into cider and so on. And then all that's left is the stubble in the fields. But then the last set of lines is all just the sounds that he's hearing, yeah. right? Lambs and crickets and, and birds. And then the last line is, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. And he's like, and? <laughs> and there is no and. That's the point. Uh, it, it's sort of a very careful description of autumn as it comes and goes. That is precisely the point of this poem is that there isn't that kind of point. Keats very clearly in this poem is fascinated by the issue of kind of concentration or even like concentrate, right? To think of the juices and <laughs> the the plumping, right? But this is a poem that is synthesizing pleasure and pain and death and life. The poem through its music and its sensual qualities, right, tries to embody that rather than to tell everybody that. Yesterday, when we were talking about the romantics, you mentioned some political and historical context yeah. for what was happening around the time that Keats wrote this poem, but that political context is, at least on a superficial reading, Nowhere to be found in this poem. Could you say a bit about that? Certain critics read to Autumn as political escapism, right? Mm. That this is 
an ideological poem in that it is trying to avoid politics, right? So it becomes mm-hmm. problematic in that way. Um, and a, num- a number of critics have tried to kind of see how there's a kind of encoded politics in the poem, right? So words like conspiring, there were arguments that those red poppies were either blood of victims or red coats or right like so there have been efforts to try to make this a much more overtly political poem there's a terrific book by a critic named Anahid Nersession called Keats's Odes a Lover's Discourse and here's what Nersession says about To Autumn in part in this ode perfection is not an achievement but a style and it is essential to what Keats is trying to say The problem with beauty is not that it is so fragile, but that it is so durable. It is there and true even in an avalanche of shit and despair. To acknowledge that fully as this poem does is a profound act of self-mortification. Every impeccable turn of every line is bought by shame, which can never be allowed to leach through the language it has hounded into being, lest it accidentally impersonate an alibi or a justification. That we can be here on this planet in this time confined by these exact habits of survival and still find things to call beautiful and to love or to be unable to stop loving is indefensible. But we are here and we do. To autumn confesses it for us. Hmm. Wow, that is so moving. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great, it's a pretty, pretty great new book. I love how counterintuitive that is. The problem with beauty is that it is durable. Durable. With what Nersession is saying, how can we read this poem in a moment of ecological crisis in 2021? Right. The the greatness of this poem is that it's giving us this scene without us. You could sort of think of this as like a post-apocalyptic poem in a way that it's a scene of life and vitality and profusion, but not, for the most part, not a human one, right? This is like a a non-human landscape. I often think of this poem as as kind of like a field recording, right? It's just like you, you set up the mic and let autumn do its work. It's really just an attempt to resist that human centric impulse. Oh my God. Okay. So I've had conversations with my neighbor uh, many times, and she is someone who is very attentive to the natural world and very concerned about ecological crisis. And we've talked a lot of times about what the world, like one time, just in passing, she said to me, you know, the world, it, the earth will go on. It will just go on without yeah. us. It's going to be and so, yeah. as the more I hear you talk about this poem, the more I start to read it as a 21st century person, and that ooze at the end, what if this, yes, there is a lot of human labor in the cider and in the stubbled plains, but what if this is, by the end of the poem, a world without us? That That's kind of really incredible. In another poem, Keats begins uh, a sonnet of his with the line, the poetry of earth is never dead. Oof. Right? Yeah. So I love Brian's idea of kind of field notes here. And so I, I wonder if we could just spend a few more minutes talking about the specific words that are being used to unify the different contents of the different stanzas. So 
one thing that I noticed, for mm-hmm. example, in the first stanza is there's a lot of active verbs, load, bless, run, bend, fill, swell, plump, set. Things are hard at work in that first stanza. And it's all things hard at work, making more and more. And we get that, that repetition to, to set budding more and still more. Uh, and then in the second stanza, things become less and less as we get words like sifting, winnowing, reaping, oozing. So it's a kind of labor there, but it's a labor that makes less of what was more. And then finally, we get to that last stanza. And as we talked about, there's there's kind of this unified imagery of, of a kind of mortality, soft dying day, stubble plains, wailful choir, the morning gnats, the sinking light, uh, the wind that lives or dies. And so there is a kind of unity to the, the movements of this poem. I wonder if you could say more about the, the specific words you notice in each stanza or how, how you see him unifying the different movements of this poem. One of the things that I think is, is hard for us as 21st century readers to, to pick up on is the inventiveness of Keats's language. He has words like soft-lifted soft dying, mm-hmm. these combinations of words to to turn them into these new adjectives. Mm. There are words conspiring together, right? Like bosom friend, mm. thatch eaves, cottage trees, or brind, soft lifted, half reaped. I mean, there are others, but there are a lot of hyphenated words that either Keats is himself creating it as these kinds of neologisms or or that are like already existing words i always connect that with the sense of profusion as well i feel the kind of tone of this poem to be not rejection not protest not celebration either but but um in the best possible sense um what a field recording gives us is this a kind of oneness with it but the the last three kinds of sounds that we hear are singing, whistling, and twittering, right? It's like these kind of, you know, getting towards a a sort of celebratory mode. I mean, (laughs) twittering is like sociable and gossipy and fun and playful, right? Like these birds twittering in the skies, I don't think that they're really twittering because they're concerned about mortality. Like they're, they're up there having a grand old time twittering away the final lines feel i agree with brian they feel more much more lively mm-hmm. than not you know i'm so used to autumn being about death and uh you know and the dying of the light and so on and and you get all that imagery of the first half of the stanza and yet the, the end of the stanza and i think this is why i was thrown by the poem at first is not about death it's about things living and twittering and singing and whistling I think it does play with your expectations where you expect this final stanza to inexorably lead to death and stillness and silence, but it really doesn't do that. It it sort of flirts with that and then instead ends with a a very soft, right? It is soft and small and quiet and intimate, but it's a a kind of soft celebration and, and an ongoing vitality. Well, maybe we can think about the the different meanings it it has as as we read it one more time. And Brian, would you be willing to read this poem for us? To Autumn, season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatchives run. 
to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel to set budding more and still more later flowers for the bees until they think warm days will never cease for summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells who hath not seen thee oft amid thy store Sometimes whoever seeks abroad may find thee sitting careless on a granary floor, thy hair soft-lifted by the winnowing wind, or on a half-reaped furrow sound asleep, drowsed with the fume of poppies, while thy hook spares the next swath and all its twined flowers. And sometimes, like a gleaner, thou dost keep steady thy laden head across a brook, or by a cider-press, with patient look, Thou watchest the last oozings, hours by hours. Where are the songs of spring? Ay, where are they? Think not of them. Thou hast thy music too. While barred clouds bloom the soft-dying day and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue, then in a wailful choir the small gnats mourn among the river sallows, Borne aloft or sinking as the light wind lives or dies, and full grown lambs loud bleat from hilly bourne, edge crickets sing, and now with treble soft the red breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. Wow. Thank you so much for reading that. That was amazing. And thank you for joining us today, Mike and Brian. Uh, this, this, I learned so much from this conversation that I would never have known. Thank you for this. What a, what a treat. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you for having us. So for more information about John Keats, we hope you will visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And you can subscribe to Poetry for All wherever you get your podcasts. Please be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Thank you.